Did they really kill the wolf, Mom? I'm sure they did. I'll kill the monster when it comes. I'll smash its head in. It's time to go to sleep now, sweetie. It's very late. Can we read it again? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 114 today, and it's the most wonderful time of the year. Halloween has begun. What spooky treat do you have in store for us? I think I picked a pretty darn good one to kick off the month, and that's The Babadook from 2014, written and directed by Jennifer Kent with Essie Davis and Noah Wiseman. A widowed mother struggling to cope with grief and the demands of her six-year-old discovers a sinister book in her home that presages a monstrous presence. We've now watched this a few times. And with this viewing, I don't know about you, but I was a bit less scared and more sad. And I think that's probably because I now work with a lot of moms who at any given point feel completely underwater, they're telling me. It makes me appreciate this theme in the film of resentment in a new way from their perspective. It makes me appreciate not having kids. (laughs) It does that too. (laughs) And I think I can even more appreciate what Jennifer Kent was trying to do here. To face this taboo that motherhood is anything other than a perfect experience for every single woman. Facing up to darkness. And then facing up to this fear that maybe we're going mad. Now, in terms of the characters, Jennifer Kent was trying to make both loving and lovable. And I know that you have a bit of a problem with that. So after this viewing, do you still feel the same way about Samuel? I don't have a problem with her trying to do it, but Samuel drives me insane. (laughs) Okay. Because obviously... The kid is the real monster, right? We could all agree to that. (laughs) This might be just me, but this may be the character I have had the least sympathy for in a number of years in cinema. No matter the danger he's in, what the source of that danger is, I really never come over to feeling anything for this kid. Even things that should win me over to his side or the things that he has in common with younger me, I don't budge. Even though he's a magician, I hate him. When he's a grown-up magician, I know that he will be one of those whose patter will be insufferable. But is any of this fair is what I I guess I come back to and ask myself. Does he have redeeming qualities? He's inventive and clever, obviously. He's good at building these destructive contraptions. But I think those are qualities that you look for in a demolitions expert on your team of mercenaries, not the kindergartner that you live with. (laughs) Well, he is six years old. And so we have to take that into account. And I do see things from his perspective, I think, in this viewing as well, more about how he's not allowed to have a dad and trying to express those feelings inside of him, trying to tell the truth when nobody wants to listen to him. And Jennifer Kent talked about being concerned that really Amelia's character would take the most flack for just being a mother who doesn't always succeed. She has shortcomings. 
but it seemed to give a lot of women some reassurance, which I think is wonderful. There's a real human being up there, just like I think Samuel is a real human being. And I think this is something we can relate to as well. Maybe you thinking about younger you, Jennifer Kent had a friend who had a young son who was convinced that he was being stalked by a boogeyman. And so his mother would pretend to talk to the creature to try to stop his anxiety. And she really liked that idea of facing the darkness and the shadows. Our first scene is our mother at her most vulnerable. This is Amelia breathing through labor from her point of view. And then right away, the ensuing car accident that takes her husband, Oscar. I like this scene a lot, the way everything works in it. The visual appearance of it, first of all, the overall look subconsciously indicates to us that this has to be a dream. There's an elasticity to it that we immediately recognize as unreality before we're given any other visual information. And I think it's a great choice to open the film this way for two main reasons. It quickly establishes that our protagonist, Amelia, has never fully woken up from this dream for six years now. And it also levels the playing field between her and her son because he wakes from a dream in this opening too. They share that experience. They both have nightmares. So she can't reasonably discount his nighttime fears if we are to take hers seriously. But even if they have that as common ground, there's not exactly the solidarity that we expect to see between mother and son. When he comes to sleep with her after his bad dream, she moves away from him in the bed as far as possible, completely detaching herself which may not be to her advantage because it makes her unaware of his movements as well if she's not connected to him because after a restless night, he wakes first and then disappears to amuse himself making a weapon. Well, we see him take up every inch of her space and her body. And it seems clear to me at least that this nurturing, this facade of nurturing, this co-sleeping is really just existing. She has to do it. She doesn't want to do it. This isn't just a case of him like me, maybe being 200 degrees when they sleep. And if I put my foot on you, you act like you're burning to death. Because I am, because you are 200 degrees. It really does keep me up. But <laughs> yeah, I don't, I do not like being touched when I am trying to sleep. This instead seems to me that he's intent on smothering her with his love. He needs all of her attention, all of her focus. And I think, in part, he needs this because he knows he doesn't get the same thing in return. We next see Amelia at work, and she is an attendant at a nursing home, and this nursing home includes a dementia ward, as you might expect. This, to me, seems like another instance of pouring her care down a well that can never be filled, and in this instance, can't truly be appreciated either. Well, there's someone there that wants to appreciate her, and I wanted to give special mention to Amelia's co-worker that has a crush on her at this point. I know it doesn't mean a lot to you because you haven't seen it yet and may well never see it. And you're specifically talking to me. Yeah, Erica, you. I'd like to do an episode about it, but I can't quite bring myself to require you to watch it. And that actor is Daniel Hinchall from Snowtown. Because it was hard enough for me to listen to a Case File episode about that... It's yeah, it's a tough one. He gives me chills every time I see him on screen. And I applaud him for taking the role of John Bunting and for doing an incredible job with it. But it's one of those, you are now always going to be that guy kind of parts. It colors my perception of him in this and any other thing I see him in. 
Do you have performers like that? No one immediately comes to mind in that way, though I do find it's hard to think of Essie Davis as anybody other than an incredibly tired mother. So when she's in something like the super sophisticated Phryne Fisher mysteries, it seems a bit odd. I think more than anything, I associate that sort of idea with an actor like George Sanders, who seems to me to be constantly playing the same kind of character, which is, I think, a variation of George Sanders. And that's a phenomenon that works both directions. It can be a positive or a negative. In the case of George Sanders, someone whose personality that we really like and is somewhat distinctive, it's great. But you often hear criticism of someone like Kevin Costner, for instance, saying he's Kevin Costner in everything he does. And that does not seem to be a strong suit. More of a blandness than an exotic, interesting bon vivant. And now Samuel is causing problems, we think, again, as his school contacts her at work and demands she come at once. He's brought this weaponry that he's created to school, and he has these increasing behavior problems. Yeah, he continues to remain isolated, and he's apparently growing more dangerous in that isolation. And she defends him to these school administrators, but it feels a little disingenuous. And I chalk that up to Essie Davis's performance for giving us a lot of nuance here. You can feel her internal conflict about this. And we know that she must experience a particularly complicated strain of guilt for feeling and thinking similar things that she is mounting a defense against on his behalf. That old saw of, I can say that about my kid, but how dare you say that about my kid? She's doing things that she's supposed to do, and yet we also need to think about that complicated chain and burden for her. If she doesn't and they kick him out, that's this huge burden on her. If she doesn't say anything and allows him to stay, it could be sort of a fix for now, but they might keep calling. I'm thinking specifically about the danger he poses to everyone else as well. They make a very valid point. 24 other students, they're worried about them too. You know what? Until you said that, I didn't really think of it in that way. I felt like they were being unfair, I guess. I could respond to what she was saying. It seems like he's making their job harder, which of course he is. But he's also a kid, and he doesn't feel like pure evil to me. No, not necessarily. But we do have to take into account the fact that 24 other equally deserving children need to receive education and instruction without disruption and being in danger from a catapult. You're right, sir. And that's hard. And I'm sure, I mean, this is a story that has played itself out in countless classrooms for time immemorial, balancing the extra needs that some students have versus the overall needs of a larger classroom. And 24 students, that doesn't even seem that big. It's pretty large. Yeah, I guess so. I'm thinking about my grade school classes. They were similar to that. But that takes a lot of time and energy to manage, even when those circumstances are operating at an ideal level, much less when you have someone who is pulling all the focus all the time. And like you said, he's still sort of an unknown quantity. He could hurt someone without necessarily meaning to, because I don't think he means to hurt anybody, just the monsters. He doesn't seem malicious at all. Can't they just have a catapult room adjacent? (laughs) Well, she's the one who pulls the trigger and she takes him out of school. So she's now got to find another school for him and keep him all the time until that happens. Well, in the aftermath of all this, when the source of this resentment that she feels for him is finally given explicit voice, it's finally explained to us exactly what the circumstances are here, it's telling that it comes from Samuel. 
and it happens exactly in the infuriating way you expect from him. It's reckless and awkward, and there is nothing she can do to control it, only apologize for it, and deal with the fallout. He basically tells a stranger the story of his birth, which is also the story of the death of his father. And we see Amelia's sister, Claire, and she's this continuation of the problem in some ways. She thinks that she's always done right by Amelia and also clearly hates Samuel. He gets uninvited from this co-birthday party that's been set up with he and his cousin, and we know that his birthday doesn't get celebrated on the actual day, which is tough for a six-year-old. And at no point does he seem to be able to let up on this pressure that he's putting on Amelia and what I imagine is the pressure inside his brain that has to be let out. We see this super dangerous stunt that he pulls and screaming at the park. We next see, though, two characters who I think are kind of there to remind Amelia of the good inside her and the good that's around her. And that's the friendly elderly neighbor, Mrs. Roach, and their lovely dog, Hachi, who Amelia just gives love freely to. In this nightly ritual of searching for and securing against these monsters, a new book appears on the shelf, but this book is very, very different. It certainly is, because this is where the Babadook makes his appearance via this pop-up book. This book is troubling, and it gets more intense as it goes, and I really like the extra pages in it. That's a smart bit of design. The implication of growing evil spreading to fill the gaps in their story. It's basically the archetype of the fictional character showing up to be let in. The wolf at the door. And on more than one occasion, there's a reference to the big bad wolf. We see it in a cartoon on television. It's even in a story she reads him. This is a clever twist on that idea, though. It doesn't come pounding on the door first. It's not a threat that you can directly identify that way. It just appears. It insinuates itself into the household. So I ask you, Erica, is the book the chicken or the egg? Does this appear as a manifestation of her desires, or was it coming anyway? Did they will it into being together? I'm not sure I'm ready to answer that yet. My initial thought is... When there's that ominous prophecy written, you're going to wish you were dead, I think she already does wish that she were dead or, and, that Samuel was. And so that makes me think, maybe, yes, it was going to show up one way or the other. At first, I'm wondering, is it even real? Is this a figment of her imagination? Is she conjuring up this story time in her head? She can't produce it as evidence, for example. To the police when she needs to. But the more I thought about it, the more it occurred to me, I think she's writing it, literally writing it, creating it, making a physical object. She does say she's a writer in a meeting with these moms and other women. Good point. Or that she used to be. And is there a better manifestation of her thwarted ambition and the associated resentment than a homicidal pop-up book? It's a nice touch that she doesn't throw it away the first time. She just puts it on a high shelf, maybe where she's always kept it, just waiting for this moment. Hmm. Or is it just that she's a writer, she's anti-censorship, so she doesn't want to turn <laughs> She can't it burn books. Right. But I think not only did she write it, she wrote it, destroyed it, then rewrote it. Because you see, when she goes to the police, the black on her hands, that's not soot from burning it, but the charcoal from drawing it again. Aha. Uh -huh. 
I really hadn't thought of that. So thank you for introducing that idea. That's what I'm going to be thinking about the next time we watch this. It does make me look at the color palette in a new way. So Samuel and the house itself, this is all blue and gray, very muted. But Amelia consistently wears pink, which to me is a variation of red, which is the color of the book. That's interesting because of my red-green colorblindness issues, I have mild trouble with that sometimes. To me, her wardrobe seemed peach all the time. Peach, I think I think it's a little bit more pink than you see it as. It definitely has more of that hue. My rods and cones don't work. I think so. And there's one point where she has an even pinker party dress on. There's a burgundy dress that she wears as well. And that's as we get later in the film. So I think she's edging ever closer to aligning herself more closely with the look of the book. Now, Amelia is finally alone for a moment, trying to take a moment of pleasure with her vibrator. And then Samuel rains on her parade. Did I say before that I hate this kid? Not only is he <laughs> exhausting, he is a walking boner killer. Can't a girl just have a wank in peace? I do think that this scene is actually a bold choice and her interrupted orgasm is an indictment of this whole situation that you can't ignore. This child, the presence of any child, it's being told to us, is there. he's the thief of joy, basically. It's one of the most front and center examples that could be mustered in regards to children imposing on your sense of self, your sense of independence. And that, to me, is a nightmare. I wouldn't be able to take it which is why I haven't had them. I know that it is 100% not for me. I specifically took that phrase, reigns on her parade, from a story you told me from your childhood of when you did that to your parents. Yeah, I apparently interrupted something at one point when I came home late one night and my dad specifically pointed out to me that I had done that to him. So thanks yes. for nothing, kid. Kids are terrible the world wide. <laughs> but... Coming back to that thing I was saying about how I know it's not for me. And when I put this idea forward, I'm sometimes, I'm often surprised by how many people confront me saying that what I'm saying is selfish. I guess I get it because yes, I am definitely saying I want my time for me and no one else. But it's usually put to me in the sense that the opposite is not selfish. And I don't understand that at all. Unless you think that there is some giant cosmic gumball machine full of baby souls that will go bad if they aren't dispensed. It's not selfish in that way. I counter that having children is the most selfish thing I can think of. Because when you decide to have a child, you're forcing a being into existence that would have otherwise not been, whose welfare you cannot guarantee no matter how much you might wish to, and you're giving them no say in the matter. And every one of those reasons to explain the decision begins with, I want. So just by definition, that is ultimately selfish. It's an unavoidable aspect of the process. Now, to cut everyone off at the pass, because I can hear them thinking, I want to make sure and delineate the difference in the words I am very specifically choosing. I think properly raising a child is not. I think that's the opposite. The people that can do that are superheroes. But there's a clear difference between having and raising. And thinking about that now, it leads me to the other end of the continuum, back to what you were talking about earlier, her job at the retirement home. She has traded youth, vitality, artistic expression, or at least the invigoration of research 
for the specter of death lingering down every hallway. Was there more that you had to say before I go on here about her vocational choice for this character as it plays out in these terms? This is my feeling, and this is based more on how the job is in the U.S. than how it is in Australia, though I assume there are similarities. And I don't think it's a choice. I think we know that she gave up being a writer. I think that was a financial decision. This nurse's aide is one of the quote-unquote easier jobs you can get because you don't have to have a degree in that field to get it. It's very low paying, but you can get the job because there's always going to be very high turnover. So to me, I think it is several ignominious steps down from where she used to be, and it's the thing that she had to get to put food on the table. I wasn't even thinking about it from the socioeconomic angle. Thanks for pointing that out. I was thinking about the fact that it feels like she has so entombed herself in grief that she has ensured her every waking hour, whether it's at home or at work, she is spending that time surrounded by the end of the line. It's sad that the lower paying jobs are not in our happiest fields. <laughs> right. But I think this also goes to what Samuel has done to her here. He sensed that something is in the closet, and he's run into her bedroom to protect her. Protect her from getting off. Thanks. <laughs> right. Thanks, kid. She can't be a person in this scenario. She's given up personhood. She has to be this paragon all the time. And just like in her job, pouring this love down a well, on her side, how do you accept love from someone you don't want to exist? That just means that Samuel is constantly spinning his little wheels. And it makes me think about a note that the director, Jennifer Kent, gave to Noah Wiseman in sort of kids' terms about what the plot was. And she said to him, this is about saving your mother and the power of love. You're absolutely right that she can't be a person, even in the most minor of circumstances. For instance, she does take a reprieve when her co-worker with a crush offers to cover for her so that she can go deal with her child, but she uses that time for herself to go get ice cream, to have a walk, just to be alone for a moment. Of course, punishment has to follow for that transgression. That's not the act of a good and thoughtful mother. And she pays for that when she arrives to pick up Samuel, and he has ratcheted up the weird, freaking out his cousin with non-stop discussion of the Babadook. Talking to the air, so at this point, we think the Babadook is already here, possibly? Honestly, I just kick this kid out. Go get a job <laughs> doing street magic or something. <laughs> Seriously, though, the family as a source of terror, that's a primal fear. That is a bedrock idea of horror as far back as you want to go. Horror is so often about exploiting our fears by introducing an intrusive, dangerous agent into an otherwise mundane and previously safe environment. And what could be more perverse than infiltrating something as sacrosanct as the family unit? The revulsion that we instinctively feel at having what should ideally be one of our safest places violated, that is very powerful. And it's all the more so when that violation comes in the guise of a loved one, especially mother, that's the gravest violation of all. And I think that she feels he's violated her world as well. We see Samuel practicing his magic in this basement world that he's created. And we see as well how this life that they're leading, what it's done to him. He's made this world where his dad is his playmate. He's almost created sort of an effigy from his clothes. And she's 
furious to see his things have been touched and handled, and they both finally express this resentment that they feel for each other. Yeah, she is busy trying to control every facet of the memory of her husband, as if maintaining this in a specific way could keep him alive, or at least preserved in amber in a way that she can accept and deal with. That by itself would just be exhausting, it seems like. So doubly so when it's not just you that's trying to access that memory. It's Samuel's father too. He has a very legitimate claim to that memory, but it's too difficult to share that with someone that she holds responsible for his absence. Samuel's situation is difficult and complicated as well, though. His memories don't even actually exist. He is trying to build something meaningful out of this finite set of artifacts, which is all he has to work with. And I think at some level, she's also got to resent Oscar for leaving, leaving her alone with this kid, though maybe she's already moved through that stage of grief. I don't feel she's moved through anything. Quite possibly. So is the presence outside or inside all of them? They find glass in their food, and Samuel is convinced that it's the Babadook. Amelia doesn't quite know what's happening. She sees Samuel twice, and so... There's a feeling she's got to be having that possibly she's hallucinating. And if that's from sleep deprivation, that again is Samuel's fault. Or is she starting to think that possibly the Babadook is real? I like the way that the film sort of economically employs these good old traditional horror tropes when the need arises here. Some of the best ghost slash possession stories, they implement what is happening here with Samuel when the Babadook ramps up this assault. It's the classic... Blame it on the entity no one can see but you. And I think it's crucial because we are entering unreliable narrator territory here never to look back. It's such a frightening prospect to be the only person who can truly see what's happening and then lose credibility for reporting something dangerous or destructive or even worse, performing the dangerous or destructive act yourself because you perceive that to be necessary for protection somehow. And for the other characters, it obviously makes it harder to take heed of his warning than if he was a generally good kid. So he's in a no-win situation. I want to add a visual note here, something that I noticed with this viewing that I hadn't before. There are a couple of specific shots that are just high up, sky, trees, no people. And I'm wondering, is this preparing us for what's coming or is it reflecting time in an interesting way? It's going to change here in a moment. I don't know the answer. I think it's interesting, and I will talk about that moment when it changes here in a bit. Okay, well, in the meantime, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that the sibling dynamic of this is going to be of interest to me. You mentioned this earlier. Sam is not invited to the shared birthday he usually has with his cousin, and Amelia's sister nails it. No one, including Amelia which is crucial, wants to be around this kid. And that news is harder to dismiss coming from family rather than school administrators or social service workers. And on the way home, he has a seizure that makes her finally say it out loud, actually give voice to it. There is something wrong with my son. A difficult admission for a parent to make, I have to imagine. All children see monsters, but not like this. She has hit her limit. She can't effectively pretend anymore. And I think it's demonstrated in a really great acting choice here. He asks her, why don't people like me? And she just doesn't have the energy to put up a front anymore. She offers contradiction to that question, but she is not selling her answer. 
She pitches it just right that an adult hears the lack of conviction in her voice and a child would not quite be comforted by it. I really appreciate that she is clearly at a breaking point and terrible things are also said to her about how she's not managing. And when she asks for help in the clearest way that she can from a doctor, she's given instead guilt and blame. Most mothers wouldn't be too keen on providing drugs to their children. There's this implication that her own pain, everything that she suffers as a result of his issues, should not be taken into account. So I am not advocating for drugging your children, (laughs) but people have to sleep. So remember that without dad there, there was no one to help with feedings. Samuel was solely in her care. I am assuming she got probably no help. So this is going to resonate with most everybody except you, Cole. It's estimated that new parents will get just four hours of sleep per night during the first year of life, and that's not continuous. They lose the equivalent of 50 nights of sleep over one year. And we do know that sleep deprivation is real. It can result in psychosis, hallucinations, heart disease, high blood pressure, among other incredibly serious effects. But with the sedatives they're given, finally, they both sleep. But this brief moment of serenity, it is interrupted by three knocks. I really love here that this is the inverse of the traditional monster archetype. Usually, it's a case of if you believe in it, it gets stronger. You make it real. But the rules and mythology of the Babadook are more in line with depression and mental illness. If you deny it, if you don't take it on, if you don't address it, That's what allows it to grow unchecked. That's when it gets you. So they're both experiencing this together now for the first time, the presence of the Babadook. I also had the sense that when they finally get this glorious sleep, that that's when the Babadook has taken the opportunity. Again, punishment. What do you think here? Her mental state or Samuel's? Which is the more crucial of the two in the development and presence of the monster right here? At this point, I think hers, because of this imagery showing that the Babadook is inside her, projecting what she is going to do, possibly killing the dog, killing Samuel, killing herself. Well, she's certainly not stable, and we come to realize that that probably hasn't been the case since that fateful night. As for Samuel, he shares his father's tendencies, obviously, to come right out with whatever's on his mind. Is that a balm on the situation, or do you think that exacerbates things? Is it enough to protect him, ultimately? I think going back to what you said, if someone is trying to tell the truth, and she's trying to deny the truth, that can only be dangerous for him. There were a couple of other films that this occasionally put me in mind of as we were watching this time. I like how it generally doesn't explicitly show too much too early. In the specific way it went about that, it made me think of The Haunting. Did you get that feeling from it, too? I wasn't really thinking about that one. I was thinking a little bit about Dead Calm in the Mm. terms of it starting kind of the same way and it being the flip side of the story, because in Dead Calm, she's got the anchor with her the whole time instead of having this unpredictable presence. Well, do you feel like that this was a case that maybe they could have shown even less and it would have been more effective for the scares? I don't know. The Babadook is pretty dang scary Mm. when we finally see him. The other touchstone came to mind when she discovers this hole behind the refrigerator that is almost like a wound in the house. Her surroundings beginning to rupture and disintegrate 
along with her mental state, immediately brought repulsion to mind, especially regarding the issue I mentioned earlier surrounding the reliability of the narrator. Aside from dead calm, were there other antecedents that this conjured up images of for you? I'm thinking a bit about Rosemary's baby Mm -hmm. and that same idea of increasing psychosis, possibly making it so that you're not being believed. And I see that when she goes to the police and again asks for help and is turned down. She's not believed. And this is when we get that different variation of the sky shot. This one is totally different. We have the high up scene and then suddenly Amelia comes into view, which to me signals that something different has happened. Maybe it's already too late. Maybe she's a different person. I think we see this when she's short with Mrs. Roach, who is the person who is generally trying to help without being asked. And then the dog barks at her so we know something's up. Well, she's obviously less and less able to keep up this maternal facade. She only takes satisfaction in those chores when Samuel is incapacitated and she can deploy them on her terms. His direct participation in this process is neither needed nor desired. And I think she speaks for all of us when she finally breaks and yells at him. It's a shocking, if honest, moment. And it does catch me up enough that it knocks me out of the movie and I found myself wondering what gets us to these points. How do we become so mentally and emotionally undone that we find ourselves at the threshold of abuse or violence? Jennifer Kent, she told this story of reading an article while she was developing this script about a man who was at the end of his tether, much like Amelia in this movie, except this was real life. He was at the top of a bridge and took his five-year-old daughter and just threw her over the edge. In a generally safe, sober, everyday state of mind, it feels impossible to relate to feeling like, yes, that's the best decision to make right now. And yet these horrors are real. It's the real things that she's doing that are frightening here. Mom's cracked and we're sitting in the bathtub together in our clothes. That one's kind of a big look at the crazy gesture. But the thing that got to me throughout are the indicators of what you were already talking about, the sleep deprivation and how incredibly dangerous and insidious it is. You may not even notice how much so in the beginning, until you're dealing with delirium and hallucinations, not even knowing how you got there. Well, you don't sleep, but I feel like I'm on the edge of a breakdown if I'm the slightest bit tired, and then definitely when I'm even slightly hungry. I don't know that I would know what to compare it to, actually, because it's always been a problem for me so that I've just gotten used to it. If I just got regular sleep, I'm not exactly sure how I would react to that, how I would feel. (laughs) You might turn into Kathy Lee Gifford, probably. It might turn my entire life around. But as it is now, I literally wake up every 45 minutes to an hour, every hour, every night for years now. I've had very small instances of not sleeping well or having terrible dreams. And I feel like I'm going insane. I can't function. I do want to stop for just a second and mention how Jennifer Kent worked with Noah Wiseman because terrible things have been said to Samuel and it's pretty scary to watch when you're thinking about a very small child. Noah wasn't actually ever on set when Essie Davis abuses him verbally. Uh, I was wondering about that because that would have been intense for a kid to handle. Absolutely. And Jennifer Kent said, I didn't want to destroy a childhood to make this film, thankfully. So in those reverse shots, when Amelia is verbally abusing him, 
she is yelling at an adult stand-in who was on his knees. Okay, so she just ruined some 40-year-old's life instead, basically. (laughs) I think so. Well, she's more and more out of control, obviously. So it's up to Samuel to take the reins of this thing. And when he goes down into the basement, it is he that is forcing the confrontation when she doesn't seem to be willing or able to. And the ghost of the husband, or the husband side of the Babadook, is there. And he says, bring me the boy. Why do you think he is asking for Samuel? So if this is all a creation in her mind, or she's the driving force, then she's offering herself the easiest out, the chance to basically be the family annihilator here. But maybe also at the same time, is it a bit of a wake-up call? This is where the path is going to lead if you don't stop? I don't see anything positive in it. I don't see the potential for anything good to come of this scenario, warning or not. To me, this seems like a symbolic victory for the darkness. It's the ultimate sacrifice. If she will commit this act, then there is nothing left standing between her and oblivion. I wanted to talk for a second about the creature design here. Creating a successful and original monster character, it seems like it would be so difficult, especially as the years go by. And for everyone that takes, dozens don't. So creating one that becomes iconic seems even harder. There are fewer and fewer costume and character choices that aren't spoken for. You can't use hockey masks, burlap sacks, clown silks, cloaks, wings, claws, gills. All that stuff has been done to death. I think the jury may still be out on how iconic this creature may ultimately be, but how do you like it so far? I loved it. I thought it was terrifying. I think especially for some reason because it's wearing a hat. That really (laughs) freaks me out. So monsters take note. Go to your haberdasher before heading out of an evening to commit your foul deeds. (laughs) Visually, I like it too, but I don't think it's because of its originality. The look of it appeals to me because it calls up visions of Lon Chaney Sr. in London After Midnight, and then popular conceptions of Jack the Ripper, maybe? Maybe that's the hat part. Maybe that's what's subconsciously speaking to me. Could be, because I definitely like the visual tradition that it belongs to, not that it's forging new iconographic trails. But even more than that, I like what it represents and the way it incorporates all the members of the family. It's obviously reminiscent of Samuel's magician outfit, There are nods to the husband's wardrobe. The Babadook is everyone in this house. Whether you enjoy the visual presentation or not, the Babadook as a concept is successful to me because it is a manifestation of this entire family dynamic. And I think it's interesting here, like with Jaws, the Babadook finally shows up about two-thirds of the way through the film. Speaking of Jaws, I've got a bone to pick with you here. I know what you're going to say. I'm a little mad at you because this is the second movie in a row that you've chosen where the dog gets it. Okay, here is my plea to all directors everywhere. Stop it. (laughs) Stop killing dogs. Stop killing animals. It's not cool. It doesn't need to happen. Indicate it offstage, something I don't want it to take place. They are handy in the story because dogs are always the first to recognize the evil. So we need them there for that part. But if you're going to just go around John Wicking everything, then I, I can't, I don't want to be a part of that. Because... Here, she ends up killing the dog. And then in the same sequence, interestingly, she pulls out her own tooth, which I love. I love teeth as a symbol in horror. What does it symbolize for you? It's such a primal image, I feel like. Teeth really gets to people. Does it? Do teeth bother oh, you? Oh, hell yeah. I'm one of those people who has a recurring dream about my teeth being loose, mm. which evidently is a thing. Yeah. 
they can mean so much, especially when they're falling out or being removed. That can be sickness, aging, your pain being excised, the loss of your vitality or effectiveness. There's a great Edgar Allan Poe story called Berenice that's all about teeth, and it still haunts me to this day since I read it when I was eight years old. In this case, I feel like the symbolism is a little bit of all of that combined. She is confronting her complete disintegration and does not have the strength to fight it, only to help it along. And what Essie Davis does to become the monster in this last act is pretty astounding. Her relentless physicality, the different registers of her voice, she is downright terrifying. She's completely unhinged. And then this is when the whole unvarnished truth comes out. I wish it had been you and not my husband. I want to smash your head in. I do think it's interesting that this is not the full truth. Because like in life, when we're pushed to the edge and possibly defeated, this stuff comes out, but it's not the total story. It's not the but or the and or why I keep going. It's just that beginning part that wounds the most. So what's the metaphor here then? Is this grief or guilt? What is it that you zero in on that this story is trying to tell us? I definitely think it's grief. But like I mentioned very early on, I do see the resentment part of it, the anger part of it, that other stage, and then almost that bargaining stage too, where she's kind of faking him out and asking for help in order to lure him. To me, the Babadook is the void of untreated, and I want to stress that part, depression and despair that comes from grief and guilt, kind of a sub-level of that. What does this monster want? For her to give herself completely over to it. That is depression to me. That is much more than guilt or grief. And she's constantly in danger because she never stops reliving this event that's the source of her misery. Her grief is so complex and troublesome too because it affects more than her. It manifests itself as this violent resentment of her son. There is massive damage here to repair. I also really like that when he's telling her at these darkest moments, I know you don't love me, but I love you and I always will, that's still kind of a threat. I'm never going anywhere. And the fact that Samuel exists is a constant reminder of what is missing in her life, especially his birthday, which is the exact inverse of the celebration that it should be. Her behavior this whole time, it really borders on abusive or at least neglectful and dismissive in the early going. And that's even at the best of times. Samuel, he says she controls whether or not it gets in, but they may be framing that a little incorrectly. When you feel depressed, how in control do you feel of whether or not it gets in? Absolutely, completely out of control. That's the biggest thing. Yes. Same for me. I don't feel like I am making the decisions guiding this ship at that point. I realize I am focusing almost exclusively on her, and it probably <laughs> betrays my biases against this kid. But he's facing terrors of his own, too. You're six, you want to believe in your mother, you're vulnerable, you have no control over your life. This person that is twice your size can literally destroy you if they decide to. And then on a more complex level, you have a number of needs that you're counting on this person to fulfill. You need their protection, their attention, their affection. There's a moment a little bit before that where he is sad or ashamed to come in and ask for help himself because there's no food in the house. Yeah, at that age, you're just not equipped. You protect yourself as much as you can. He says the Babadook won't let you love me. What's my excuse then? Hey-oh. <laughs> anyway, but he's wise to the workings of this situation. 
you notice that he's talking about defeating the monster before the monster even arrives in the movie. And I feel like he knows that's because his birthday is coming up and he knows what that means. And I think this has got to speak to kids who have been in similar situations where they've had to parent their own parent. And that trope that is still true, which says we have to care for ourselves before we can care for anybody else. She does make efforts. She does acknowledge her own sickness, and that's the classic first step to wrangling with an issue like this. And ultimately, with his help, she does expel it. And I really like going back to our thwarted authorial ambitions. It's a nice touch that it looks remarkably like ink when it comes out of her. And I think that when that vision of Oscar appears again, this time it's different and his head gets sliced off. And to me, that's to make her face that he's actually gone. Well, ultimately, what we arrive at is that the monster is real. You just keep it under control. You even nourish it. So does this belong in your mind to the same school of horror where evil endures? Say, Michael Myers comes back every time, no matter what you do to him. Or is it a case where sadness endures? That's a different thing entirely. You know what my answer is going to be <laughs> to that. It's always going to be sadness is always there. Yeah, it doesn't feel like they've won or this is happily ever after. So this ending is horrific for me. The notion that we are locked in this family unit with this thing ever present. I would sooner it eat me and be done with it than have it lingering there just waiting for a chance to exploit an opening forever. But that's family. Boing. Well, yeah, and that's depression. <laughs> Boing. I guess that it's just always somehow kind of there in that closet waiting to come out. But I do appreciate that at the end... Even though our pup is gone, those bruises are healing. And there's physical affection that feels natural. And the final smiles are hers and his. For now. <laughs> so why did you choose this for Coloween Scary Times? What is it ultimately that sets this apart for you as exemplary horror? It's such a different story and different perspective. I think that... Horror traditionally can be more about watching the torture of women turned into exploitation or spectacle. But this is about navigating through that internally completely different way. And though, whether it's evil or sadness that is going to just be there, it's lifelong work, but we can recover from it. We can heal from it. And I wanted to see a story where she is not offered a lifeline or help in the way that she needs it. So she has to discover a different way to get through it. So self-reliance is a big part of it for you? Self-reliance, but then also this little guy really stepping up and doing what he says, what he's promised he's going to do. He does protect her, but they have to protect each other. Still don't like him. <laughs> I really do like his spirit more and more. Would you have chosen this for one of your episodes? I don't know. I think maybe, yeah, when I think about it, probably so, because the reason I would choose it, I think, is fascinating in, in that it's a subject that is truly taboo, which is something that I think horror as a genre should always be working at. You are simply not allowed to say that sometimes your child is awful and you don't like them, no matter how much you might feel it. And that's when things are good. Maybe this is something that only Australians could have done when I think about it. It's something about the region, its geography contributes to the willingness to deal with this head-on. I'll cite an example from the animal kingdom. Do you know the quokka? Are you familiar with that animal? 
Yeah, those little smiling guys. Yeah, they're those adorable little marsupials. You always see them taking photos. They always seem so happy and excited to be living their life. And they're unique to certain areas of Australia. I learned that a female quokka that is carrying offspring in their pouch, if they encounter a predator, will dump that baby in hopes that it will give the predator something <laughs> else to focus on so they can get away. So long, sucker. Pretty awesome way to go. Yeah. So Dump thank that goodness kid. for the unforgiving, relentlessly harsh Australian outlook, or we might never be able to talk about these things. So look out for Babadook 2, the quackening. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, I can't imagine the torment of looking at your child and having to think, you cost me my partner forever, whether that's legitimate or rational or not. But one of the functions of horror is catharsis. So I think this is a perfect framework to take on this subject. And the flip side of that, looking at your mother and knowing that she doesn't want you there and still having to get through every day. Not just having to get through every day, but come back with affection in the face of that. You think you might ever turn around on Samuel? Maybe, <laughs> Maybe. ever? If we watch this a few more times, I might grudgingly come over to his side. But boy, it's hard going in the beginning. Well, it's a testament to how well it's written and well acted. Well, speaking of how well written it is and the things that are in it, I want to talk about something that wasn't necessarily in it before we get out of here. I wanted to get your reaction to this idea of the Babadook as an LGBTQ icon. I didn't know that was a thing until I was reading up on it. Hmm. Yeah, I know that Jennifer Kent didn't intend for it to read that way, but as is sometimes the case in these instances, her intent is irrelevant. I'm really always interested in these stories about when a piece of art takes on a life and significance of its own beyond and regardless of the creator's intentions. Because it seems like it was just some sort of odd circumstances and coincidences that made this happen. Yeah, I think it started as kind of a joke and then it blossomed into something more significant after that. And I don't know that this one will have the same longevity as some of the other examples, but that's okay. I could be entirely wrong about that. The one element I think that I'm not so keen on is when it feels like there's a rush to exploit a market, like the Shout Factory Pride edition of the Blu-ray. I am still not entirely convinced that move was anything but a crass marketing ploy. I do like Jennifer Kent's reaction to the idea that this has happened, which is that, oh, Babadook, you found a way to still be relevant. Well, how about recommendations? What is it that you've got for us for that today? I chose Mother from 2009, directed by Bong Joon-ho with Kim Hyaja and Won Bin. We've got another widow here, and she lives alone with her only son, whom she dotes on and tries to protect due to his intellectual disability. Then a high school girl is found dead and circumstantial evidence places her son near the scene of the crime. Now, there are several monsters that Mother has to face, one of which is also her son, who can never fully understand what he does to the person who loves him. It's an outstanding and chilling film, and I think the final moments are quite unlike those in The Babadook, more about a necessary escape and a possible permanent forgetting. How about you? Well, this time around, I've chosen Next of Kin from 1982, and that's directed by Tony Williams and starring Jackie Karen, John Jarrett, Alex Scott, and Gerda Nicholson. It's about a young woman who inherits a retirement home after her mother dies and the strange deaths that then begin to take place there. And I'm choosing this one because this is my favorite Australian horror discovery I made this year. So wonderful. 
I really enjoyed this one. It has great atmosphere. It's like an Australian Gothic, maybe not quite as stately as something like Picnic at Hanging Rock, but certainly more restrained than you might expect. It's also fun to see John Jarrett as a swarthy and sympathetic young lover rather than the terrifying goddamn monster he is in Wolf Creek. He's wearing super tight pants here. <laughs> the marketing materials you might see for it may make it seem like standard fare 80s slasher stuff, but this is much more of a slow burn, a house with a dark secret type of film. It's really a good time. And where the monsters are real. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Mother and Next of Kin. And that brings us to the end of episode 114. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We'll definitely have some seasonal spooky treats over there, and I'm also going to be doing a reading of my favorite scary story of all time. Are you going to say what it is, or are you going to leave it for a surprise? The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. It is my favorite horror story ever written. If you would just like to keep in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a ton of great shows, so please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out what all of our cinema-loving friends are up to. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Jaws was such a hit that we have kind of a longer list this time, so thanks to Andy Wolverton, Laura Cannon, the fine gentleman of FUDs on Film, Keith Rich, Jeff Duncanson, Tim Lego, Desmond Childs, John Laubinger, Phil DeCane, Jesse Dampolo, Brandon Claiborne, Travis Trudell, Brian Sauer, Leanne Kubich, Jared Wignall, Ross McLeod, Michael Hill, Chris Casey, Nick from the Film Shake Podcast, which is also part of our network, and Grindhouse Dave. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, The 25th Frame, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Thank you very much to the nice anonymous person who left us a five-star rating on iTunes since last time. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.